You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Do you want more stories of military women veterans? I just launched a book sharing 28 stories of military women. It includes stories ranging from women in the process of joining the military to women who have served and retired. Stories from the Army, Air Force, Marines, and Navy. But don't take my word for it. Hear what Natalie said about the book. This is a fabulous collection of inspirational stories of endurance, struggles, and women forging their own futures. The diversity of their background and experience is fascinating, but the broad range of military careers is astounding and sets to heart how integral women are in the military. This is a must-read for anyone considering a career with the armed forces or struggling to figure out their future career. The challenge and adjustments these women have made to create the life best suited for them is the type of motivational encouragement that can help others be confident in reaching their dreams. Check it out on my website, Airman to Mom. Dot com or on Amazon. Welcome, Olivia. I'm excited to learn more about your military experience and what you are doing for Soldier for Life. Thanks. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be on your show and to be able to provide some insight for those that are in the transition window about U.S. Army Soldier for Life. Let's start with why did you decide to join the military? I guess for me, that's a kind of a more family answer. My dad was in the Army when I was a kid and I am the first of three girls and daddy's little girl and you know I went everywhere with my dad and that's what my dad did so that's what I wanted to do. So I would say probably about the age of four I knew that I would be in the army. I just didn't know what I would be doing but my dad wanted to make sure that I went to college. He wanted to make sure that I got my education first and so I went to college and did ROTC and then commissioned in the army in 2001. Right before September 11th? Yes. So September 11th did not happen yet. I commissioned June of 2001. I was commissioned into the Army's Chemical Corps. I went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri to do my officer basic course. And toward the end of my course, we were actually in in an exam. It was actually a very tough exam. Uh, Our instructor came in and said, oh my gosh, America has been bombed. And we thought he was joking. And he says, no, this is a serious matter. We've just been bombed, and the news is on in the next room over. When you're done with your test, you can go watch the news. And I was actually almost done with my test. I finished it and walked into the next room, and I actually saw the, the second plane hit the second tower. So it kind of changed the course of what I was going to be doing in the Army at the very beginning of my career. Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. You were right at the end of your Tech school, is that what it sounds like? Yes. So after basic school is, is a school where you uh, they send where they send you to after you graduated from college and you kind of get the basic understanding of what it is that you'll be doing specifically for the Army. It can last anywhere from a couple months to about five or six months, depending on which branch of service in the Army that you find yourself in. So how did the military change between... Before and after, I know you weren't in for very long, but did you notice anything different? I did notice some changes. So when I showed up to Fort Hood, which was my first duty assignment, 
at the end of 2001. So I saw pre 9-11 training and then quickly being turned into preparation for deployment. So my first deployment was in 2003 with the 4th Infantry Division in OIF-1. And so I think the way that the Army trained and prepared definitely didn't go back to what was 9-11. We have kind of seen battle, if you will, for the last 17 years or so. Yeah, pretty much since when you got in the Army, we've been at war. Yeah. What does a chemical officer do? So the title is actually kind of long. It is a CBRN, which stands for Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear. And essentially what that means is those areas are the areas that I'm supposed to understand as a chemical officer. And I provide an assessment to the commander about those things on the battlefield. So depending on what those events are, I provide the commander an assessment of, hey, sir, there is this biological attack. It's here on this on, on the battlefield. Here's what we know that to be. And here are some ways in which we can mitigate that. Either do we... Do we go around it? Do we go through it? Or do we avoid it? And we do that for for each of those pieces, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear. Essentially, a chemical officer is a reactive staff member. So if you see a chemical officer doing exactly what they're trained to do for the Army, that's kind of a bad day for everybody. Okay, that makes sense. And you deployed to Iraq three different times. Can you talk about the differences you saw as the war progressed? Yeah, so in 2003, during the ground invasion, we left Kuwait and headed into Iraq. We had soft-shelled soft Humvees. We actually didn't even have doors. We had put some sandbags on the bottom of the floor of our vehicles. IEDs had not quite yet been developed at this point. And when we crossed over into Iraq, it was kind of quiet at first. And then as we got closer to Baghdad, the traffic and the tension definitely escalated. While I wasn't in direct combat during those times, I will say, though, it was full of tension. I did see burned out buildings and vehicles from skirmishes that happened in front of us. Saw some burning bodies, you know, some very vivid, I think, memories that I have of coming into war. But what I also remember is that the kids, they were excited to see us. They saw the promise of change, so that I thought that was really, really cool that they, that they saw us as a as a uh, vehicle for change. And our rules of engagement were very different too. So 2003 was us coming in and developing, you know, what what is it that we're doing, and what is it that we're trying to accomplish. And then my next deployment was in the end of 2006 to early 2008, so it was 15 months long. And in that deployment, that was known as the surge period. So that was very intensive combat fighting. Um, IEDs were very prevalent. They were very, they're very catastrophic at times. And, and the rules of engagement were definitely different. We saw, we saw a change in the way that the Iraqis saw us. We saw a change in the way the people saw us, both good and bad, kind of ebbed and flowed. Sometimes we were good and sometimes we were bad, depending on what region we were in. And then during that time, also, they call it the, the awakening. It's where we saw a lot of the tribal leaders realize that, we, that they needed to come and work with us, that we weren't necessarily the problem or the enemy 
and that the violence that was happening had to be taken care of and that they that we had to create an alliance with and so it was it was it was refreshing to see that especially during an intensive fighting period and then my third deployment was in 2009 to 2010 i was a troop commander and we during that time we were told to push out of the city so we no longer held a base or a foothold, if you will, within the cities of Iraq. We had to push out into the countryside and we turned over the lead of our operations. So the operations that we were conducting, you didn't see an, a, an army soldier or an army vehicle in the front. It was an Iraqi army soldier and it was an Iraqi uh, military vehicle that was in the lead. We were training them and trying to develop them to be able to take on their their, their efforts to be able to provide stability for their country. So it was interesting to see from, from the ground invasion to the surge and then them taking the lead. You know, I think there's always going to be work to, that needs to be had, but it, I think it was kind of cool for me individually to see those three big shifts. And more yeah. importantly, uh, the thing that I walked away with is that, that we brought change to that country, whether you agree or disagree with why we were there at the end of the day there is change in that country and there's a a generation of young children that could that could do something different specifically for girls and those girls will become women and become leaders of their nation so i think that's cool that is really neat because you were there for a, like all of it you were there from the beginning and then in the surge and then at the end when the drawdown was happening so that's kind of an interesting perspective going to going to the same country three times and seeing how it changed. You went three different times. You were a chemical officer all those times. Did your job change while you were there? I did. So I've had um, quite a few different jobs. My first deployment, I deployed with 4th Infantry Division, but the aviation unit, specifically the Black Hawk unit. So I actually got a very unique perspective of that country. Because I was in a Black Hawk unit, I had the opportunity to hop into a Black Hawk and fly. I flew from the southern border of Iraq all the way to the north and from the east to the west. So I got to see an aerial perspective of the country, and that was amazing and unique. And, and the relationships that I built with, with, those, with those people within the organization, you know, I think last for a lifetime. I'm still friends with many of them. And, and during that time, I also served not only as a battalion chemical officer, I served as a brigade chemical officer. I also served as a convoy commander, so I was in charge of an a multitude of different um, smaller organizations, and we brought in fuel trucks from Turkey into Iraq, and we helped escort these civilian fuel trucks to be dropped off at different fuel depots in Iraq, uh, one in Baji and one in Baghdad, and there were different types of fuels, gas, kerosene, benzene just the different things that were needed for the people of Iraq to be able to fuel their vehicles, to fuel their kitchens. And so it was really, really neat to see that and to be able to be on the ground um, maneuvering, if you will, on the roads. And sometimes it was a little dangerous and other times it was boring, but it was definitely an experience. The second time I deployed, I served as a brigade chemical officer again for a different unit in the 1st Cav Division. And then I quickly shifted from being a brigade chemical officer into being a day battle captain. So essentially that is a position inside the brigade tactical operations center where you kind of synergize and, and know and push information that's going across the brigade's battle space and relaying that to the commanders. Doing that uh, for a few months and then being shifted to be an LNO. I was a liaison officer for my brigade 
into the division. So that moved me from Taji, Iraq into Baghdad. I was at MNDB headquarters on a victory base complex. And there I served as the LNO for my brigade. And I did everything from taking the, the battlefield information, synchronizing that, and then providing that detail to the division. My main thing that I was supposed to do was when my brigade needed assets, such as aerial assets of helicopters and UAVs and things like that, I fought that fight for them. Took that in front of the assistant division commander for first cab to a general and said, hey, sir, here's our list of wants and needs, and this is why I need them, and being able to articulate that and advocate for my brigade. It was was a lot of fun. I actually enjoyed it. It It was nice to be able to be part of a team and getting pieces that were necessary for the fight. Uh, so while I wasn't actually in the fight, I was able to help coordinate the pieces that they need, and that was very rewarding. And then my third deployment, I was a troop commander. So I was directly responsible for about 350 soldiers across uh, five different uh, FOBs in Iraq. And because we we were originally in Baghdad, then we pushed out to the, to the countryside, and we went back to Taji. It was challenging in many ways to be able to try to provide command and control across that expansive space. But at the same time, it, it allowed me to kind of be able to be on the ground, travel with my teams, provide assets that were needed for the brigade commander, the brigade sergeant major, and the staff at, at various locations that they needed. So uh, very similar jobs in many ways, um, and at the same time, different kind of jobs. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. We could probably talk about your deployments for over an hour, and I'd still have more questions. Um, (laughs) But what was the hardest part of being deployed? I honestly, I would say the hardest part in all three deployments was the separation from family, particularly at the time. uh, The first one I was engaged, married for the second and third. I deployed the second time with my husband. We were together. Uh, The third time we were separated, he was back home at stateside going to grad school and I deployed. So it's a separation um, for us. Uh, we did not have kids at that point, but just being not near your loved ones and then not being able to do the things that you take for granted. You know, getting into your own car, driving down the street and getting ice cream if you wanted, or going to the movies, being relatively safe and comfortable. I think those are the things that I missed the most. And I think that's what made the deployment hard. On top of the stress of it's a dangerous situation and and never knowing if the person on the left or right that you have developed a great relationship may not come home. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. After your last tour to Iraq, you cross-trained over to public affairs. Why did you make the switch from chemical officer to public affairs? So when I was in the middle of my troop command, I got a notification that my request to move from chemical to public affairs was accepted. Uh, I didn't do the job as a public affairs until after I completed all three deployments. Uh, After my troop command, I came home and then they sent me to public public affairs qualification course at Fort Meade. For me, the choice to leave chemical core was I felt that I wanted to do something different. I didn't know if I would have job satisfaction as a field grade officer in the chemical corps. And I thought that the public affairs arena and what I thought a public affairs officer was doing or could be doing was a little bit more of something I wanted to do. 
and so I was excited that I that my choice of being a public affairs officer was 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 approved. And I've been a public affairs officer officially since 2008, but um, by work, I started being a PAO in 2010. And in your bio, it talked a lot, a little bit about what you got to do. What was the coolest thing that you've done as a public affairs officer? Oh, that's kind of hard. I kind of think that everything I do is kind of fun as a PAO. I mean, so my first public affairs job, I was a deputy public affairs officer at West Point. And when I was there, I was also an assistant triathlon coach. And so I got to travel with a team of 20 cadets all over the world at various um, events. So that was really cool. Outside of that, as my job as a public affairs officer, I went to a lot of events in New York City with the cadets. I got to meet a lot of great professionals in the field of PR, public relations. In fact, one of one of my great civilian mentors that I look up to a lot, her name is Ms. Julie Hunt, and she owns her own PR agency in New York City, Hunt and & Gather, and you know, it was, it, I, I lucked out in being able to meet her and kind of seeing um, what she does in that space. So I think, I think all of that is really cool and neat and interesting. Then I moved on and I, I got the opportunity to go to grad school. The Army sent me to grad school. I went to Georgetown and I got a master's in public relations, corporate communications. And I was able to take that and harness that information and the connections that I made. And I went to the Office of Chief of Army Public Affairs, which is a headquarters department of the Army Directorate in the Pentagon. And I, I was a, for one year, I spent as a media relations officer. So I got to be an official spokesperson on topics of operations, intelligence, and logistics. Uh, and then I moved on and I got to do some planning. So I did a lot of planning communication pieces that involved personnel topics within the army. I also served as the executive officer to both Major General Malcolm Frost and to Brigadier General Omar Jones for a little bit. And then I also served as the lead planner. So I wrote a lot of the lead communication pieces or the messaging that the Army was utilizing from the Office of Chief of Public Affairs to the Army wide. And then after doing that, all of that for about three years, I've moved on and now I'm the the PAO for Soldier for Life, which is an outreach organization. And I can honestly say that every single job that I've had has been fun, exciting, and I feel lucky that I get to enjoy what I do every single day. Yeah, it sounds like you have a really cool job and lots of cool experiences from that. You mentioned your husband earlier, and I met you and know that you have kids. When did you have kids um, when you were busy doing all these things? Um, so so I, I feel like we're never not busy. But um, So my husband and I, we like to joke and say that we were issued to each other because I met him at the very beginning of my career. We met when we were both in processing as brand new second lieutenants to Port Hood, Texas, back in 2001. So, but we got married in 2004. We didn't have kids until we were both majors. So we were field grade officers and that was at West Point. Uh, So I had a daughter almost six years ago. She will turn six next month. And then we had a son just a little over two years ago. Uh, So we are older parents, whereas a lot of my friends started younger. And so as they are coming close to the retirement Um, phase of their life their kids are also also leaving so they get to retire and be empty nesters and we are going to be the parents moving on to a second career with younger kids but I wouldn't have it any other way for us it was about 
being able to meet and complete the milestones that we wanted within our career and then what what best made sense for us and for us it was just us being older yeah that makes sense have there been challenges that you face as a multi-mill couple Oh, yeah. I mean, I think my story of challenges is any different from anybody else's in the military, whether they are a military member married to, to a civilian or married to a military member. And those challenges remain the same, right? Balancing careers. How do you balance two separate careers where you both can ideally be together, do your job, but at the same time, you know, have time for family? I think the other challenges that we have is kids, right? Like who does drop off, who does pick up and the kids are sick and do we have a babysitter on tap and have we exhausted the list of 15 babysitters yet? And who's going to the office today and who's not? Or are you going in the morning and then we're going to high five at lunch um, because the work still has to get done. So I, I don't think our challenges is any unique from anyone else's, but I think it makes for, a, you know, a fun life, if you will, in some ways, right? It, uh, life is never boring. Um, I like to say that our house is a circus. Um, sometimes that circus is a lot of fun and sometimes not so much. So you've been in, what, 18 years? Is that Just about 18. This June I hit 18 years. Okay. Um, so do you know or do you have a plan for what you're going to do after retirement? So I saw so my retirement window is going to happen here shortly. So I've got two years and I got some ideas. I, part of me would like to move on and take the career set that I have and the skills that I have and do public relations. Uh, part of me wants to just be a stay-at-home mom because I have little ones. Uh, part of me kind of wants to do both, so I'm not sure how I'll, I'll do that. Maybe some part-time work. Uh, part of me wants to do work in the nonprofit world, specifically in advocating for women veterans. There, there are a plethora of topics out there that women veterans need a voice to dual military has you know challenges as well how do you advocate for that uh, so that's interesting to me I think the other thing that's interesting to me is completely nowhere near the career field that I do and it has nothing to do with women veterans but um, potentially maybe working with the international justice mission that does a lot of work with with against human trafficking across the world so we'll see I'm not quite yet sure what I'm ready to do but at the end of the day, what I do want is flexibility for me and my family so that I can take care of the kid, where I'm not struggling so much and balancing the whole kid and work thing. I'd like to be able to take my kids to school and pick them up and, and then be active somewhere between those, those, those time frames during the day. Yeah, that makes sense. And it makes sense that you're starting to think about it, but you're not quite sure what you're going to do. But from all the different ideas you listed, I know whatever you do is going to be amazing. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you and learning a little bit about your experience, but I have one more question. What would you tell girls considering joining the military? I would tell them, and this is something that I share with any lady, young lady that wants to come in, is that the opportunity to do well in the Army today is far more than the opportunities that I had or my predecessors had right? In 2016, DOD opened up all career fields, right? There's nothing in the army that a woman cannot do. You want to be in artillery? You got it. You want to go be a tanker? You've got that. You want to be a ranger? That is open to you. So I think that's, that is a really cool opportunity to be able to capitalize on, that your gender is not going to stop you 
from achieving what you want, but you have to put in that hard work. You have to be willing to come in, do the work that is necessary to be successful. Um, I would also say that I would highly recommend young ladies to look at the army as an opportunity. It does not have to be something that you decide to do a career like I have, but you can absolutely use it as a launching pad. It is a great resource for you to one, come in, get some worldly experience, get some leadership experience, understand a little bit about you and how you think and act and how you can be part of the whole and then get your education paid for. It is also an opportunity on the backside when you take off that uniform because everybody transitions. Everybody takes off their uniform at some point in their life. And when they do, because they walked through the doorway called Army, the opportunities on the backside are going to be far more than if they didn't walk through. There are companies, there are schools, and there are agencies looking for those people that have served because they understand that a service member comes to them as a valuable member of their team. They get what it means to serve. They get what it means to be a team member. They know dedication. They have great ethics and values, and they're going to be a great team member for any organization, and that's what they're looking for, and they know that they're going to be a better student if they choose the student route. They're going to have a higher grade point average. They're going to give back to the school. And so I think that's what we've got to tell these young ladies is that the opportunities exist in the Army. And and it's a great place to find yourself. It's a great place to dig in, see what you're capable of, and then just exploding from there. Yeah, that's really good advice. And I think I like that you said that you don't have to do it for a career because I was in for six years and I learned so much about myself and who I am and I'm using that today to run my own business. And so there are so many opportunities and the community outside of the military and in the veteran space is huge and there's so many ways to connect and Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to be on the podcast. And I really enjoyed hearing your story. And that's all I have. Thank you so much. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to be, to be able to share my Army story. And hopefully someone who's listening will want to join the big club that we call United States Army. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get Women of the Military podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show onto all the apps people like to listen to? How much will it cost to get started? And how will I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. So, if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing it, go for it. Go to anchor.fm slash start to join me and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of 
women of the military.